especially working on this passage this week, it was a real-life example of the balancing of suffering and victory that we face in the Christian life. It was a a real-life example of of, of balancing almost that sense of despair right alongside uh, a very firm hope that we have and that we look to as Christians. It was a real-life example of being honest about the pain and the suffering we're going through while also affirming what is true. The two don't cancel each other out. They come together. We, when we're doing this in our own Christian life, can sometimes get a little bit off balance. When the, when the suffering and the pain and the loss overwhelm, we can, we can be in that despairing place and, and, and depressed place, and we, and, and we can have a hard time even seeing the hope or believing that victory will ever come. We can lean so far that way that we can't see the promises that Christ has given But sometimes, and I've seen families too, where all we do is focus on the hope. All we do is look at the silver lining. Isn't it great that she's gone home? What a great victory. Isn't this wonderful? Sometimes we can focus on that so much that we miss the lesson. And we miss miss the, the strengthening that the suffering can bring for us. Sometimes by only focusing on that victory... We can be inauthentic in dealing with the emotions that we're wrestling with. The authenticity of life that comes when we accept the pain and suffering and we go through it. Remember the psalmist said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And I will be in the Lord's presence forever. David knew that as he penned the words of the 23rd Psalm, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all it should be. Blessed be thy name on the road marked with suffering, though there's pain in the offering. Jesus did both. Jesus did both. Jesus both did the necessary suffering as well as securing the assured victory. Jesus walked through one in order to get to the other. And it was really the only way for him to get to the victory, to really make it a a real victory that impacted the world forever. It was the only way to get to the victory that we needed, the victory over death, the victory over sin, was for him to go through the suffering. He needed to do that for the victory for himself and for us. And as we read all the accounts, all four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of these final hours, we see he balanced both as well living into the suffering as well as assured of the victory. But all this introduction about suffering and victory brings us to another uniqueness about the Gospel of John. It's not so much that it's just a focus only on victory, but we'll see how John, as he writes his version, he clearly tips the balance in the direction of victory. Jesus suffers, yes, But the Jesus that John presents here is one who has great confidence in what he is doing. There's there's a clear awareness of what's coming and, and that it is supposed to be this way. John does not record Jesus saying, Oh Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do that. John does not record that. doesn't mean that John didn't believe he said it. But John presents really a victorious Jesus. It's what we've heard Jesus referring to all along. What, what is the word when we said, whenever Jesus says this word, he's talking about the cross. What's the word? It starts with G. Next letter is L. Next letter is O. What's the word? Jesus talks about his glory. He talks about being glorified. It's time for my glorification when I go to my glory. And he's talking about the cross. 
Glory is a, is a victory word, isn't it? Victory is a radiating, shining word of God. And yet, and yet Jesus is referring to this time of suffering as glory. That's an example of the story that John tells, or as John tells it. He's talking about the hour of his glory. It's a place of victory more than a place of suffering. The cross is a place of exaltation less than it is, more than it is a place of, of suffering for Jesus. Now, John does not contradict the other three Gospels. The Gospels are not in contradiction. They give us four perspectives that weave together the richness of what happened, and we still don't know all the details of what happened. They all work together, but John here, written much later than the other three, emphasizes what he emphasizes in order to support his purpose in writing this all down, that we would believe. Remember the series. We've been in this series for about 14 months now, and we can see the end of it in September. But I, I, I'm gonna, it's it's going to be sort of bittersweet for me to get to the end of it, John. I'm, I'm, I'm loving this. And, and this in particular really un- reinforces what John said. And we've introduced it and reminded us all along of John's purpose that we're coming close to in John 20. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, and we might say, and I wrote it this way, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This stuff really happened. And this is the way I'm telling it because my goal is that you look to Jesus and that you believe and that you have life in his name. Jesus be the center of my life. And so here's what we're looking at as we look at the story of the arrest and the beginning of this season of darkness and suffering. John's gospel turns a corner and heads towards the cross. The quote, hour that we've spoken of now has come. John's version of Jesus' arrest, though, consistent with the other Gospels, presents us with a confident Jesus heading through suffering to victory. So we're going to look this morning at these 11 verses. First of all, at the arresters, the show of force that, 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 that uh, Judas brings with him. Secondly, we'll look at Jesus and the ways that he deals with these authorities and asserts his own authority and his identity. And then thirdly, we'll look at Jesus and the confidence that he brings to this uh, task and the control that he has over it. So we look first at the arresters. The opening words of chapter 18 link, the long, link it to the long farewell preparation and prayer that Jesus has been in. Ever, we've been there since chapter 13. has been that Thursday night. And finally, this first verse of chapter 18 turns this corner. It says, when he had finished praying that we've been looking at in chapter three, three sermons from just from chapter 17. It's a long prayer with a lot of stuff in it. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples. And like the other three Gospels, they moved from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane, not a formal garden, but a kind of a quiet grove of olive trees. John, however, does not mention the prayer of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about Jesus' prayer in the garden, but John does not. They mention him praying, asking for the cup of suffering to pass. Luke even mentions sweat like drops of blood, identifying with the pain and agony which Jesus was going through. But John does not mention that. He moves rather to Judas, the betrayer. And here we see Judas being the guide. John notes that Judas knows right where he would be. They had retreated there before. They've used this garden before as a time to kind of get away and and to pray together and sort of regroup. And as we read, it seems as as if this is all according to plan. In fact, in verse 4... John explicitly says, Jesus, comma, knowing all that was going to happen. (laughs) Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen. Jesus, aware of the suffering to come because of this betrayal. Jesus knew what Judas was up to. But as Judas comes, he also guides a big group to Jesus. These Roman soldiers, temple guards, and all these different officials come. 
And it says here, Judas guides them to Jesus, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees, carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. It's one of those things we just kind of read and we think it's just like the, you know, we've seen in the, the other three Gospels or if you remember the, the Passion of the Christ, all these people show up in the garden. But John specifically says a detachment of soldiers, meaning Roman soldiers. The word for detachment here apparently means that this can be a, a division of soldiers that can mean as many as 1,000 soldiers. Other things I said said, or it could be as few as 200. Oh, 200. That's all we need to arrest an unarmed Galilean preacher. (laughs) It could have been as many as 200 soldiers with their commander, with weapons. It was a huge group of arresters to get this unarmed man. It helps to know that during Passover, of course, particularly it was particularly a tense and, and kind of volatile political climate going on in Jerusalem. And so the Romans would, they were kind of wondering, are the Jews going to use this Passover as a time to to uh, overturn us or whatever. And so there were extra troops around during this time. But you kind of wonder if they were all sitting in the donut shop kind of hoping for some action in Jerusalem and they heard the call come in. Problem, up at Garden Gethsemane. And the alarm went out and they said, oh, let's all go. Kind of like, you know, that happens to police sometimes when they're a little, things are a little slow, they all show up. But anyway. It says there was a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests. There were several Jewish leaders as well. This, after all, was their plan. We've seen this being woven together through, through John's gospel. That they've been planning, they've been scheming, and now it's coming together. Now they've got him. We have seen all the way through that this is what's going to happen. And we've been calling them the opposition. And here they are in full force. And now with Roman backup. This is a good time just to pause for a moment here, make sure we are keeping in perspective what Jesus or what John's talking about when he refers to, quote unquote, the Jews. Often John will just say the Jews, the Jews, referring to the opposition. But we have to remember that when he says that, he's talking about just the Jewish leaders, just the ones who are threatened by Jesus, the ones who are threatened by his authority, the ones who know that if Jesus really is a Messiah and comes into power, that they will lose power. It's so often about power, isn't it? (laughs) Even when it's about money, it's about power. And here it's about power. When Jesus, or John says the Jews, he means these Jewish leaders in opposition to him, not all Jews. And that horrible misunderstanding has led to an ugly racism and a horrific anti-Judaism for the last two millennia. It's an irrational and wrong understanding of what's said when the Jews crucified Jesus. It was the Jewish opposition. It was those who were arranged against him, not all Jews. Some would distance it so far and say it wasn't the Jews at all. It was really the Romans who killed him. And yet even Pilate, as we'll see in the chapters ahead, continues to claim innocence And try to push the responsibility back to the Jews. The Romans do bear some responsibility. But we have to remember that all of the earliest Christians were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. The gospel writers were all Jewish. This is not a debate along racial lines. But a debate along theological lines. This whole conflict is about the ugly corrupting power of power. 
And it's a powerless pilot who can't seem to do anything about it. This was an inner Jewish tension, not an anti-Jewish tension over whether Jesus was or was not the Messiah. And none of this comes as a surprise to Jesus. Again, verse 4, Jesus knowing all that was going to happen. And as John tells it here at verse 4, it is Jesus who takes the lead and speaks first. And so we move from the arresters now to Jesus himself asserting authority and identity in this interaction with the arresters. They come into the garden rather than demanding to find Jesus. Jesus steps up and asks the first question. Jesus takes the lead. He asks the leading question, who do you want? Who do you want? Jesus sees the whole arrest before it unfolds. He's already made the decision to lay down his life. It's just what he told us in, in chapter 10, verse 18. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Just because John does not report him agonizing about the suffering does not mean he didn't do it. But here he is presenting himself for that suffering willingly. I have the authority to lay down my life. It will hurt. It will be painful. But this is what I'm doing. Who do you want? And their answer is also anticipated. And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. Now note in John's version, there's no kiss of Judas. Judas sort of retreats back with the opposition. Judas doesn't need to identify who he is because Jesus identifies himself. It's me. Here I am. Jesus is in charge of this version as John writes it. And his answer back to the arresters is classic John. It's the true Jesus presented all the way from the beginning of John's gospel. It's the identity answer that we've seen over and over again. Jesus says, they said Jesus of Nazareth and he said, I am he. I am he. And in our English versions, we capitalize I am. Our English versions may just have I am he, but the wording and the meaning are clear. This is God's holy and divine name. It's what God told Moses to say when Moses asked, and who shall I say sent me when I go to Pharaoh trembling and frightened and not wanting this job at all? And God said, tell him that I am has sent me. It's what John has told us Jesus said in several places through the gospel. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the resurrection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. And in John 8, 58, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. And it happens three times just in a few verses right here in the beginning of chapter 18. In verse 5, verse 6, verse 8. I am he, I am he, I am he. Are we sure that that's what he meant, that I am? Or is he just using the verb, I am? You're looking for Jesus? I am he. Are we sure? Are Are we reading in what we want to see here? No, we know because of the response that comes. Look a little bit farther, this response of holy fear. Only John records that the soldiers and authorities here who've come could be as many as 200. Jesus says, I am he, and it says that they drew back and fell to the ground. And they didn't just, it wasn't just because it was like, oh, wow, he really is that guy named Jesus. <laughs> it's like, he's that guy named Jesus? Let's arrest him, let's kill him. When he said, I am he, it came with the full theological conviction of the presence of God. This is the biblical response to what we call a theophany or a a vision of God, an appearance of God, a visitation of God. 
And when it happens to mortals in scripture, the only response is to fall flat on one's face on the ground. These who are equipped and all fully armed drew back and fell to the ground. It was nothing less than a response of holy fear that they were now in the presence of the holy God. And they fell to the ground. I thought of this week, at the funeral last Saturday, the closing song was I Can Only Imagine, and some of you know that song, and it was, it was a wonderful way to end a, a service for a believer. The lyrics speak of coming before God in heaven and trying to imagine what it might be like. The, uh, the words go something like this. Surrounded by your glory, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus, or in awe of you be still? Will I stand in your presence and hear, or to my knees will I fall? That's what happened to these guys. Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak it all? I can only imagine. These powerful, reassuring words of this awe when we truly stand in the presence of God. It was so powerful and so reassuring as we sang it on Saturday morning. Then six days later, lo and behold, we sing it at worship in the annual meeting. And I was a mess. I was blubbering all over the place as it stirred up memories of last Saturday. And, but also with the reality that I too will be in his presence. Will I be able to stand or will I be like this and draw back and fall to my knees? Unable to sing because of the tears and the joy. Sad, happy. Pain, hope. Suffering and victory are all woven through here. But even as the suffering begins... Jesus is all Jesus, and he's all confidence and control. As John writes it, Jesus continues to move forward, confident of what's going to happen. And even as he presents himself to the opposition here, it's just Jesus, and he, and he really is, is protecting his disciples. He says to uh, the, those that would seek him, he says, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. And then John says, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled, would be fulfilled. Where, where have these words been spoken? Jesus said them actually in chapter 6, verse 39, chapter 17, verse 12, where Jesus says, I will not lose one of them. So uh, these words are normally used in quoting scripture, fulfilled what had been said, but John here is saying that Jesus' words already are on that level of scripture. Jesus knew what was happening. He'd said it before. He said it's happening. Jesus is in control, and he's confident as he moves towards his suffering. Another unique feature to John is what Peter does next here. We have Peter's resistance as he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, the right ear. Actually, this incident of cutting off the ear is in all four Gospels. But only John tells us who did it. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't name the disciple. And John goes, it's time to flesh Peter out on this one. Peter did it. Only Luke tells us that because Luke's Luke's purpose is a little bit different. It's still to present Christ, but Luke has him healing the ear. John doesn't mention that. And only John tells us the guy's name, that it was Malchus. But really more poignant than the fact that it's Peter who cut off the ear, more poignant really is that John has Peter, in a sense, bearing the struggle here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have Jesus struggling in prayer, saying, Oh, Lord, if if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But in a sense, Peter is trying to prevent and trying to prevent the suffering to come. Jesus, Peter here is trying to, trying to push the cup away from Jesus himself. 
The cup which Matthew, Mark, and Luke had Jesus agonizing over, the the cup is now mentioned here by Jesus himself. But it's mentioned as a response to Peter and as a response of his own obedience. Jesus says to Peter, don't try to prevent that cup. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? See, Jesus now has already come around. And if we're to put this together with all the other Gospels, he agonized earlier. But John picks up on now he has come through. And the Father said, I'm not going to take it away. And so Jesus is living into the plan here. Peter's trying to prevent it anyway on his own, like we've seen Peter try to do before. And Jesus says, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And so this is Jesus' obedience of living into this and willingly receiving and drinking the cup. The cup means suffering. That's what it means. It means punishment and suffering. Several places in the Old Testament, if you want to go and and look at a concordance and look up cup in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, there's several different ways that it comes across, but it's referred to as something that the wicked are going to be made to drink. It's a cup of punishment. It's a cup of derision. It's a cup of God's scorn. It's a cup of desolation, it says, by some of the prophets. Isaiah speaks of the cup of the wrath of God to drink from that cup. And John himself, later when he writes his book of Revelation and the vision that he receives, he too speaks of the cup of God's wrath. The cup is a horrible thing. It's an ugly thing. It tastes horrible. And it identifies with the sin of the people. In taking the cup, Jesus is identifying not only with the suffering of people, but with the sin of people as well. It identifies with the sin of people and identifies with God's hatred of that sin. Not the sinner, but his absolute abhorrence over the sin of the people he created. It's that cup. It speaks of the punishment that is deserved. We should all drink from that cup because we have not claimed him as Lord and Savior and made ourselves right with God. And so he takes the cup on our behalf. Jesus is about to drink it willingly. And he knows what the Father, what and why the Father has given it to him. Knowing that it will secure a victory over sin, it will secure a victory over death, God will win, and in that is glory. (laughs) He's on his way through the dark valley to the victory, and in that dark valley is this cup to drink. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus will suffer horribly. John is not going to give us a lot of details in the next several weeks as we look into 18 and 19 and 20. In fact, one of the words that only John gives us in the cross is, it is finished. And that's so John too, saying, I came to do a job, I've done it. And so Jesus from the cross says, it is finished. Jesus said a lot of things from the cross. We assume those seven last words, but the one that John heard was, it is finished. This work that I came to do, this cup that I came to drink, this victory that I came to secure. Suffering and victory. John is not avoiding this suffering. His friends, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have given us a more graphic look at some of that. He mentions the flogging. He obviously speaks of the cross. John is not avoiding this suffering, but his whole goal is to lift up Jesus and to get Jesus in the the center, if you will. To get, get... to fulfill his purposes in writing this book. There was a lot of other stuff that Jesus did. John tells us, I'm not telling you everything. I'm just telling you what I'm telling you because I want you to believe that in him 
is life. And only in him. And that you would believe, that you would put full faith in him. That you'll understand that the suffering was necessary. But you'll be able to cling to the victory as well. John's goal is to lift up Jesus and to put him at the center. For those of you that might have been just a few minutes late this morning, you missed a wonderful song that we sang, Jesus at the Center. From my heart to the heavens, Jesus be the center. It's all about you. And that's really John's theme here, pulling our attention back to the person of Christ. But as we finish the message this morning, before we move into some more worship music, I want to just take a few moments to reflect on suffering and victory. Our own perspective on that in our own life, as well as the suffering and the victory of Jesus. Which are you more drawn to as we think of the suffering of Jesus or the victory? Where does the balance go in your your response to it? Do we just focus only on the, the difficulties, the pain, the suffering, and kind of get lost there? Or do we kind of over-spiritualize things and say, everything's going to turn out okay, and every discussion has to be tied up with a neat little victory bow? It isn't always tied up neatly with a bow, because life is hard. And we don't always figure out how all the pieces of suffering fit and what God's doing in them. Ultimately, we know there's victory. And so our life is lived into that balance as well as it was for Jesus and the work that he did. So I want to encourage just a few moments of reflecting. What are we drawn to more? And why do we need both? Why do we need to accept the suffering and the pain at the same time we live into our hope? We reflect on that for a few moments and then the worship band will come and lead us in worship. Lord, hear us now as we reflect on this and come before you. The suffering servant and victorious Lord. God, we ask you to be patient with us and forgive us when we get so stuck in the difficulties of life that we can't see the hope and the victory you've given. We ask you to forgive us, Lord, when we want to just put a rosy glow on everything and to deny the difficulties in life and write them off or blame somebody else. Help us understand, Lord, as you so perfectly did, the purpose of the suffering and the security and the confidence of your victory secured for us. Thank you for leading the way. Thank you for being willing to drink that cup of suffering that we might have life, life eternal, and hope and victory in you. Amen.